Please look with me at Romans 8. Just uh, three verses that we want to look at in some detail. Romans 8, beginning at verse 9 and reading through verse 11. Three really wonderful, wonderful uh, and critical and hopeful verses in Paul's letter to the Romans. And as I said to the inquirer's class uh, this morning, as we talked about the Bible, I want to say to you, as we read, read these words, let's, let's just remember that God's word is a gift of his grace. It's, it's a gift of his love. And every word, every word that he speaks, you can trust because when he speaks, he tells the truth. So let's come to God's word with that kind of assurance and confidence. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Thanks be to God for his good, true word. Let's pray. Lord, uh, come to us, uh, encourage our hearts, tell us the truth, tell us the truth. You've, you've spoken the truth, you've preserved the truth for us, but we need now for you to come by your spirit and take this, your word, uh, and speak it with power to us. Come, Jesus, by your spirit. Be in our midst and take these things and make them live for your people. We ask and we pray this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. If you received uh, the local paper this morning, saw the local paper this morning, uh, as I did, you saw and know that the local paper was wrapped in a special section. And uh, there was one word on that uh, special section. One big, bold word. The word remember. It's uh, September 11th, 2001. It's the 10th anniversary of the terrorist attacks in which... So many thousands of people died. This day for many of us is um, a lot like a day for people of my father's and grandfather's generations. You've probably heard comments made, maybe read editorials, heard pieces likening to September 11th to December 7th, 1941. Days that you just can't forget. And it's good to remember. Uh, It's good, good to remember. Uh, Dates that are sober, painful reminders uh, that there is evil in the world. Um, Sober, painful reminders that this world 
is not what God intended his world to be. Uh, Sober and painful reminders that this world is terribly, terribly and desperately broken. Uh, And in the midst of that, as we, as we remember specific things related to September 11th or December 7th, 1941, or other dates not connected to us as a people or our country as a nation, but dates in other parts of the world in which people suffered and died because evil is a reality and, and people suffer because evil is a reality. In the midst of all of that, there's a, there's a question that just emerges for me. And it's this question. What does it look like for God's people? Citizens of two realms, to be sure. Citizens living in this world, but citizens of an eternal kingdom also. What does it look like for God's people, citizens of an eternal kingdom, what does it look like for them to live faithfully in the midst of, of this craziness and brokenness that we see around us. Let me just remind you that that Paul is writing to some people as he writes this letter to the Romans who had to be asking the same question. What does it look like for us to live faithfully in the midst of the craziness and the brokenness of this world? This letter to the Romans was written in about 57 A.D., Nero became emperor in 54 A.D. and reigned for 14 years until 68 A.D. And it was Nero who, if he hadn't started doing this, was soon to begin using Christians as fuel for torches in his imperial gardens. We're not the first generation of people to have suffered real loss and tragedy. These folks who are meeting in these homes and and maybe even in caves in Rome in 53 and 54 and 55 and 57 and 59 and 62 and 68 A.D., these people are faced with malevolent powers and forces. And the question for them, the question that they had to ask, and and which Paul very honestly, very truthfully does deal with in this letter, is what does it look like to live faithfully in the midst of this? Now the particulars of what it looks like to live faithfully in the midst of this, we aren't going to get to until chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and into 15. The particulars of it are yet to come. What does it look like to live faithfully in the midst of this world? I mean, one of the things that Paul says in chapter 13 of Romans is submit to the governing authorities. That's Nero he's talking about. So you see my point is here, the complexities for us were experienced by our brothers and sisters. Decades and centuries ago. It was complicated. It wasn't easy. 
the particulars of what it looks like to live faithfully, Paul is going to come to in those chapters. But what he's doing here in these verses, in this whole section of Romans from chapter 5, verse 1 through the end of chapter 8, what he's doing is laying the foundation. He's putting the building blocks in place. He's putting the props in place, the stuff upon which you erect a life of faithfulness. That's what he's doing here. And you come to these verses, and I, I, I hope you don't get tired of me doing this. If, if you do, please tell me, because I don't do this to be cute. I, I do this to try to help you and me make sense of God's word. But as we come to these verses, it seems to me that Paul, again, is giving us some pegs upon which to hang things as Christians living in this fallen and broken and desperately needy world, as Christians seeking to erect a life of faithfulness upon a solid foundation. Here, in what are, I think, critical verses, verses 9 to 11, he gives us some pegs to hang things on. And here they are. Here are the pegs. Verse 9, he's referring to a past event. A past and decisive event. It's not the first time he's talked about it. It It's not the last time he will talk about it. In verse 9, he's referring to a past event. In verses 10 and 11, he's telling us about a present experience, a present reality. And then in verse 11, he's pointing us in the direction of a future expectation past event, a present experience, and a future expectation. Past event. Let's remember some of the things as we come to this. Let's remember some of the things that Paul has been saying so far. And this takes us back to July and and early August as we've looked five times at these first eight or so verses of Romans chapter 8. These are some of the things that Paul has told us, has said are things that are true about Christians. This is some of that stuff from 30,000 feet. That's where we started. I said I want to look at things from 30,000 feet and then begin to drill down into some of the particulars and some of the details and some of the stuff we've seen from 30,000 feet from that big picture perspective are these. If you're a Christian today, you are freed from the threat of condemnation. That's in verse 1. You're freed from that. And what that means is that you have a new standing in the presence of God. And that takes you back to Romans chapter 5. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've gained access into his presence in this grace in which we stand, firmly planted, never to be uprooted again. Secure. You're free from the threat of condemnation. You have a new standing because of what Jesus has done. And then you're freed from the power of sin. Look, I get that it doesn't feel like it sometimes. I get that. So did Paul. But the fact of the matter is, 
that by virtue of the, of the work that Jesus has done in securing salvation and by His Spirit applying the benefits of that salvation to particular people, you have been set free. If you're a Christian today, You've been freed from the power of sin. And that means you live now in an entirely new realm, in a new environment. You are in Christ Jesus. And that's verse 1 also. And the day is coming. This is the third thing we've seen. The day is coming when the very presence of sin will be banished. There is a future. There is a time There is a condition coming in which you and I will be completely delivered from the very presence of the plague of sin and death. Can you imagine such a thing? But what that does is give you a completely new orientation, right? Freed from the penalty of sin, freed from the power of sin, you will be freed from the very presence of sin. You have a new standing, you live in a new environment, and you have a completely new orientation. Your orientation, my orientation as a Christian, is not the hick et nunc of this world, the here and now. It isn't. That's not my final point of orientation. It is the there and then of the return of Jesus and His work of finishing what He started. But right now, we've seen in this passage, we're in this walk. We're, we're walking. We're walking. We're walking. As Eugene Peterson puts it in a great book that you ought to get and read sometime, the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. And that's verse 4. And there are a couple of things that characterize this walk, this Christian life. Change, we are being changed, and struggle. And what's interesting to me about these verses, This sort of reminds me of, and maybe I've told this silly little story, used this silly little anecdote in the past, I don't remember, but it kind of reminds me of the man who said to his wife on the day that they were married, I told you the day I love you, the day we were married that I love you, and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. I want you to notice, and I know I've said this to you before, I want you to notice that Paul keeps coming Back to things. He keeps rehearsing things. This in the past, this first thing, this past event, this decisive and defining thing that has happened to you. But he keeps coming back to it, and he has it in mind in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. What is he doing? Well, he, verses, the verses that precede it, verses 5 through 8, are very much in his mind. He's describing a particular way of life. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. To set the mind on the flesh is death, verse 6. 
The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He's describing a particular way of walking. But look at what he said. He's saying to these Romans who have come to Jesus Christ, he's saying something decisive has happened to you. You are no longer in the flesh. But you are in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then he goes on to say, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, fascinating it isn't it, how how interchangeable Jesus and the Spirit are in this passage. All he's saying here is, look, if you have come to Jesus Christ, if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ, Something decisive has happened. Something defining has happened. In fact, as you look a little bit more broadly across Paul's letters and the teaching of Scripture as a whole, here is what you conclude about this from what the Scriptures teach. What the Scriptures teach is this. If you have come to Christ, it is because something decisive has happened to you. The decisive thing doesn't happen when you come to Christ. The decisive thing happened, and that is why you come to Christ. Let me take you back to chapter 6, the first four verses. I'm not going to read it all. I just want to remind you of some things that we've looked at in the past. Just remember that the verbs in chapter 6, the first few verses, are passive in their voice. They are passive verbs. What that means is that the subject of the action is being acted upon. When Paul says you were died and you were buried and you were baptized, he is reminding these Roman Christians that they were passive in this. That something happened to them. They were killed. They were buried. They were baptized in Christ and then subsequently raised. Something happened to them, you see. That's Romans 6. There's there's a passage in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. It's a passage I've referred to a number of times where Paul reminds the Ephesians that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. But then in verse 4, God, or Paul through, God through Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy, even when you were dead, has raised you up and caused you to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. The way he talks about it in Colossians, the first chapter, he has delivered us, he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Again, be clear about this. If you're a look, this is so freeing. It is so encouraging. It is so liberating. If you're a Christian here this morning, it is because God has acted in your behalf. He has acted upon you. He has acted in you. He has delivered you. He has set you free. He has transferred you from the realm of the flesh into the realm of the Spirit. He has delivered you from death and brought you into an environment of life. Now here's where that's important. I live with me. I live with me, and I get tired of me. 
And it is very, very encouraging to me to know that it was God's idea to take me on as a project. He took me on with all of my sin and brokenness and bondage and imperfection. He's the one who took the initiative. He raised me from death to life and he will finish what he started. That's what Paul's talking about here. There's a decisive thing that has happened in the past. Let me share with you another passage. You know this passage, but it's really an important passage. It's Ephesians as well. There's, you know, there's, there's teaching out there that I, I kind of want to take exception to this morning. Uh, teaching out there that, that reads Ephesians chapter 4 uh, in a way that is different from the manner in which the Apostle Paul intended for us to read it. Let me read the verses for you. It's Ephesians 4. Verses 20 and following. This is not the way that you learned Christ. Referring to the verses above, describing people who are callous, who've given themselves up to sensuality, who are greedy and practice all kinds of impurity. You didn't learn Christ in that way, Paul says. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Here's the thing I want to take exception to. And please bear with me in some of these technical details. They're very, very important. The thing I want to take exception to is this. The prevailing, I think, interpretation of this passage is that the whole of the Christian life is this business of putting off the old nature and putting on a new nature. That you've got two natures. The old one, you starve. The new one, you feed. You heard that? Right? So the whole of the Christian life is this putting off the old guy and putting on the new guy. My friends, the verbs don't, don't. Leave us with that interpretation. Here are the technical details. There are three verbs in those verses. Put off, to be renewed, and put on. And the first and the third, the putting off and the putting on, are in the aorist. You know what that means? That is a description of something that happens at a point in time. When the Colossians learned Christ, when they were established in Him, when they came to Him, they put off the old man. And they put on the new man. It's exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans 6. You died and you were raised. And in Romans 7, the old husband is dead so that you can be wed to a new husband. If you're a Christian this morning, the old man is is put off. And the new man is put on. That is who you are. That is your identity. And the verb in the middle, to be renewed, is actually a present tense verb. The renewal is going on. 
It does continue to go on, this renewing of our minds, the renewal of the totality of our being. Mind isn't just your brain for the Apostle Paul. Mind is, is your thinking and your desiring. It's, it's much broader than just your thinking. It's being renewed. But you know what's interesting? All three are in the passive voice. Something happened to you in the past. Put off and put on. And something is happening to you now. You are being renewed. Why? How come? Because God, who is loving and who is gracious and who is personal, is intent upon rescuing particular people and restoring them. That's the decisive thing that has happened in the past. That becomes the whole basis upon which Paul can make any appeal. When in verse 13 and following, which we'll look at at more fully next week, back to Romans 8, we'll look at more fully when he says, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, the reason he can make that appeal with real confidence and real hope is because this decisive thing has happened. The old has been put off. The new has been put on. 2 Corinthians 5.18, if any man is in Christ, new creation. Not mixed. New creation. That's who you are. That's, That's the ground upon which, the basis upon which, along with these other things, that the Christian life can be lived. It's a reality, folks. It's a reality. And you know what's striking? It's always been that way. Here's a verse. I, this verse wasn't in my Bible this, until this last week. Psalm 119, verse 32. Listen to this. This captures what we're talking about. I run in the path of your commands because you have set my heart free. You see? Obedience becomes a possibility because there's been a crucifixion, there's been a burial, there's been a putting off, there's been a resurrection, there's been a putting on, there's been a wedding. The old husband is dead and you've been united to the new husband. Something decisive has happened. My heart has been set free. And so now I run in the path of your commands perfectly, hardly, But over time, there is growth. Does it happen easily? No. No. But something decisive has happened. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And then here's the second thing, and it's so important. I'm not in this on my own. And this is going to become important as well as we think about this, these 12th and 13th verses But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I am not in this fight by myself. I am in the Spirit. The Spirit is in me. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. Think about that. Think about that. How stunning that is. You've heard this silly little story, right? 
the preacher who preaches the sermon about about inviting Jesus to come into your life to be your Savior. It's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to think about, good thing to reflect upon. John says in the first chapter of his gospel, to those who received him, accepted him, he gave the privilege, the right of becoming the sons and daughters of God. This pastor preaches this sermon about receiving Jesus and taking Jesus into your life. And they're on their way home. The pastor and his little girl, she's about six years old. And the little girl says, Daddy, how big is Jesus? And Daddy says, Jesus is big. Jesus is very, very big. And she says, if he comes in, won't he stick out? This is where, To have Christ in me. To have the Spirit of God dwelling in me. It's a fulfillment of the promise Jesus made in John 14. If anyone loves my commandments, I will come to him. If anyone loves me, the Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. We will dwell with him. We will dwell with her. That's the very language that Paul uses here, verse 9, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. The word in the text is the word from which we get our word economics, right? In the original, it refers to home management, refers to the home, the dwelling place, the place where people live. Is that unfathomable to you that the infinite personal God who has created all of this, who sustains all this, and the Son who has come into this world to rescue you, redeem you, save you, by the Spirit, the Father and the Son, come to take up residence, making you their home. You get your brain around that? I'm not in this thing by myself. I'm not in this fight by myself. I have the assurance that there's no threat, no condemnation. I have the assurance that because of this decisive thing, the power of sin is broken. I have this great future hope. And in the midst of this, the infinite personal triune God has taken up residence in me and made me his home. Now, if I wanted to take two more hours, I'd take an hour for each of these two points. But I'll just mention them to you and encourage you to reflect upon them. This Spirit of God, who has taken up residence, bringing all of the realities of the Father and the Son and their tri-unity into your very existence, this Spirit is the same Spirit the same spirit who hovered over the stuff of the creation and over the course of those six days brought order out of chaos, brought beauty out of darkness and filled up the emptiness with God's glory. I, think, I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again. There are lots of questions that are legitimate questions for us to ask about the creation. 
But let's never be sidetracked as we seek answers to those questions about the creation. Let's never be sidetracked from this particular point that in the creation there is a trajectory set for your salvation, your redemption. The Spirit who created in conjunction with the Word this world of exquisite beauty, majesty, tenderness, interdependence, that Spirit is doing the same thing in you. People used to ask me, still do, will we recognize each other in heaven? I used to say yes. I've started saying no. Because you and I will be so transformed, we won't recognize each other. We will be so supremely glorious and beautiful. We won't. You're Mike Malone? No way. Yes way. And here's the other thing. This Spirit of God in union with the Son and the Father who brings the very presence of the Father and the Son into your life to take up residence in your life. This Spirit, the Spirit poured out on the day of Pentecost is the defining, the defining feature of the new age. The age to come. The age that the prophets spoke about and longed for. The age that the disciples wanted so desperately to come. The Spirit of God who has taken up residence in your lives is the defining feature of the Messianic age. You and I, if the world wants to ask the question, where's the evidence of the kingdom of God? Where is the evidence of the glory that is to come? You and I, my friends, are it. We are it. The Spirit who inhabits us is the Spirit of that new age, that messianic age, that age of surpassing glory. And the evidence, the evidence by God's grace can be seen in us. So there's a present experience And then there is, lastly, there is a future expectation. Verse 11, Paul comes back to this again. He's referred to it in chapter 6, verse 4. He comes to it again in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. See, he comes back to this future orientation. These bodies, I don't know how this works exactly. These bodies, your bodies, your bodies are going to be raised. I don't know if you've read Don Piper's book. I don't know if you've read the book Heaven is real about the five or six-year-old little boy who died and who saw heaven. 
I haven't read either one of them. Portions of Don Piper's book, but I haven't read either one of them, start to finish. Let me tell you something. The resurrection of Jesus doesn't just tell me that there is something after death. The resurrection of Jesus tells me what my life will be like after death. And that is the only life that can tell me about it. Because Jesus who was raised by the mighty life-imparting Spirit of God raised that dead body, brought it back to life, transformed it, glorified it, so that it would never, ever die again. And in that body, my friends, Jesus hugged his disciples. Jesus ate with his disciples. Your bodies, my friends, will be bodies that can see, bodies that can hear, bodies that can sing, bodies that can embrace other very real, though very different bodies. What's going to happen when you die? You've heard me say it before. The great divorce. Body and soul are separated. Your soul, if you were a Christian today, moves immediately into the presence of Jesus where it is perfected. Your soul will never, ever suffer the plague of sin ever again. But your body will decay. But when Jesus comes back, your body comes out of the ground is restored and reunited. Eyes, ears, nose, arms, glorified, very different, but real. And in that body, you will enjoy the blessedness of the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever. Past events, something decisive has happened. Present experience, the infinite personal God taking up residence in your life and a future expectation, the expectation of true and full humanity glorified to enjoy the new heaven and the new earth forever. That's the foundation upon which the Christian life is lived. That's a word that I need on September 11th, 2011.